Revelation 1 and verse 12, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If you were here last week, you might remember, um, we left it as John turned round to see the source of this trumpet-like kingly voice that was speaking to him. It was a voice of authority and so he turns, verse 13, and sees one like a son of man but dressed in these priestly robes. In fact, he's described in similar terms to the messenger from the Lord described in Daniel chapter 10. We'll get there in a bit. And just as the priests in the temple would tend the lampstands, So this priest is with his churches, not far off, but absent. So not not absent or far off, but close in, there's an intimacy. He's with them, he's tending them. His lampstand's showing God's presence and his blessing among his people. And then for this week, he describes in detail what it is that he sees. He describes him as a son of man, we said before, there's imagery there from Daniel 7. We'll be singing those words in a bit as well. Remember Daniel 7, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And yet you see this king... This authority of the Son of Man is not like the authority of earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. This, this exalted human figure that John writes of will bring an end, it says, to the treadmill of the succession after succession of world-dominating pagan <coughs> kingdoms. In Daniel 7, it's from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and to Rome. And yet here, what was a distant vision for Daniel is now reality through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christ has received the dominion from the Ancient of Days. He is the King. He is the Ruler. Before we jump into this description of Christ, though, and I do want to work our way through the different aspects, the different descriptions of different parts of his body and face and try and work out what's going on there, Um, I want us to flick up a couple of extra passages because I think we'll see that, that John is, Jesus is, splicing together different passages from the Old Testament for a reason to help us try and understand these metaphors and messages. So the first one is Daniel chapter 10. If you can grab it, that would be great. 
Daniel 10 and verse 5, a couple of verses there. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, if that helps. Daniel 10, I've got a page number of 897. Page 897, Daniel 10 and verse 5. I'll read it from verse 4, actually, verse 4 to verse 6. Daniel has a vision of a man. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. So here is one from the Lord bringing a message to Daniel. We'll see similar imagery coming up in a moment. But flick on as well to Ezekiel, or back to Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, and verse 24 to 28, that's page 830 to 831. If you've got one of these church Bibles... Ezekiel 1, verse 24. God's people are in exile, and yet what we find is the Lord is with them. There's this incredible um, mobile throne, if you like, uh, creatures bringing the Lord in a message. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was that was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a son of man. I saw that from what happened to be his waist up. He looked like glowing metal as it's full of fire and that from there down he looked like a figure and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. So if you read our verses in Revelation 1 we're meant to have Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Ezekiel 1, at least, in the back of our minds. Similar imagery and metaphors and ideas being used. And yet as we work our way through these verses, we see there are seven physical aspects that are outlined for us. I take it seven again is deliberate, the idea of completeness and fullness. We'll see his, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth and his face all described for us, vivid imagery, each one kind of adding to our understanding of who he is and what he's like. And yet part of our problem is this, if you, if you stick into Google Images, Jesus, Revelation 1, you get some really weird stuff that's been produced. There are some quite helpful things as well. Um, here is one quite helpful thing, I think picks up different sort of imagery and ideas. Um, we will use each of those little pictures just to hang our seven things around. But you do get some wacky stuff as well like that. I've not done that myself. That is actually something from the internet. 
obviously. But what that means is we have a kind of romanticised artwork out there, which means as we read something like Revelation 1, we, we sort of miss the surprise of what's going on. But if you will, try and put yourselves in John's shoes. This is Jesus as you've never seen him before. John had travelled with him for three years. He had fished with him. He had spoken to him. He had listened to him. He had touched him. He had left everything to follow him. For John, Jesus was real and grounded in history. Perhaps he experienced some tiny glimpses of glory. Think of the transfiguration. But this, this description we get in chapter 1 is another level. This is something new. This is Jesus as you've never seen him before. But because of the weird artwork, and we can kind of miss the surprise as we read it. So let's go through each little bit and try and work out what's going on and why it's um, described as it is. The first one, as you can see, verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And actually, if you were here in the first week, you might remember I gave you a sneak peek of what's going on. Because in Daniel 7... If you remember, it's not the Son of Man who has white hair. It's the Ancient of Days who has the white hair. Which I think is deliberate. Let me read to you Daniel 7 and verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. So do you see what's happened? By using the white hair description, John is saying... This Son of Man is none other than God himself. He raises the stakes for us. He expands our understanding of who this Son of Man figure is. Commentators say the white probably picks up on wisdom and purity. He's saying this Son of Man is divine. He is pure. He is wise. What else? Well, his eyes were like blazing fire. You can't pull the wool over eyes like blazing fire. He sees the secrets of human hearts. He sees all. And his fire burns away sin and impurity. He is the one who can see what we're really like. He is the one who knows us and sees us. And yet he is the one who is totally righteous. He's got feet as well, thirdly. Feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. Again, there seems to be this kind of fire purifying imagery going on. But maybe bronze feet pointing us to to weapons and war and judgment. Sin is not to be debated with, but defeated, destroyed. He's got feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. Do you remember, as we said in week one as well, these descriptions, I think, are not meant to be kind of linear per se. We're meant to make associations. That's why those romantic images don't really help us very much. Because there's a story going on through the imagery that we're learning about. So feet like bronze. Fourthly, his, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know if that's what rushing waters look like. Might be. There we go. 
authority. The voice of a deafening volume like the throne in Ezekiel 1 and indeed the messenger from Daniel 10 as well. God's presence, his power in speaking through this individual. You can't ignore it. The kind of thing that you can't just ignore. He's got a right hand and he's got seven stars in his right hand. And down in 20, again we saw it last week, we read of these seven stars and we see in verse 20 that they are the angels of the seven churches. Which creates a problem. Because people don't really agree or understand quite what that means. It may be there's imagery, it may be something rather like a guardian angel of each church. Some say that. The, the, the word is simply meaning messenger. So maybe it's something like the messenger for the church, a messenger going to the church, or, or better still, a, a pastor or minister or one who brings the message of God to the people. The angel who brings God's word to his people. We don't really know, but what we do know is that God has them in his right hand. Which I take it is, is both a, a challenge and an encouragement. It's a challenge because they are God's instrument. They are in his right hand. He speaks their words. They are bringing his message. But it's an encouragement too. Because in some of chapters 2 to 3 of the different letters being written to the different churches, if these angels are church leaders, to know that they are in the Lord's hands will be such an encouragement. Hearing that God is with them will be just what they need. So do you see, it's a challenge because they are in the Lord's right hand, they are bringing his message, his word, but it's an encouragement too for these angels because they need to know that the Lord is with them. He's got them in his hand. Because the message he brings is not always one of comfort. Sixthly, we have a mouth. And out of the mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. God's word is not harmless. It is powerful. It is dangerous. It is convicting. Hebrews 4.12 Perhaps a verse that you'll know. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divining soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's striking as, as someone says, his word comforts those who are disturbed by their sin and disturbs those who are comfortable in their sins. Maybe you know something of that. Something of... That experience when you read the Bible or someone says something to you and it just hits you where you are in the situation that you find yourself. It comforts you where perhaps you need comforting. It convicts you where perhaps you need convicting. It's like a surgeon's knife that opens up our hearts. Double-edged. Cuts us open, but he cuts us open in love. And that will be the experience of the seven churches in chapters 2 to 3. They will hear words of comfort and encouragement but also challenge and conviction. And they must because he has eyes like blazing fire and feet like bronze in a furnace and hair as white as wool. He is one who speaks perfect righteousness. 
He is one who cannot ignore sin. He is one who sees and speaks to his people who need encouragement in the midst of opposition and challenge in the midst of compromise. And so you see his words must be like a double-edged sword. As they are to us. And then finally, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I have to admit that even though I'm going to be recorded forever on this, and it's probably the only thing you will remember from this sermon, this image is slightly spoiled for me due to Teletubbies. Try and steer clear of that rather jaundiced baby with the yellow face. I think gloriously majestic and pure and radiant. Think the Lord in all his glory. Jesus, you've never seen him before. The, the Jesus that John knew, the fisherman whom he followed, whom he left his fish for, the one who he lived with and listened to, the imminent Jesus, the Jesus of history, whom John was friends with, but now he has seen the transcendent Jesus in all his glory. Now he has seen the transfiguration, but, but turn the volume up. Turn the senses up. He sees him in his splendour, powerful, pure, precious, with words that divide and judge, with eyes and a face of brilliance. Jesus says he's never seen him before. But if you're anything like me, we find it hard, or I find it hard to operate at both levels. Either I've got the imminent Jesus of the history and the Gospels, with little glimpses of glory, or I've got the transcendent and powerful Jesus of Revelation 1. Here, for John, if I can put it like this, he has both together. Which is a huge encouragement for us, because it means Jesus is not anemic. He is not unable to help us or deal with our problems. He is not taken by surprise. He is not wimpy. No, for John and his readers who will have needed to hear this, he is able to offer them protection and power. And we domesticate him at our peril. Think of brothers and sisters around the world today for whom Revelation 1 is the kind of message they need to hear as they are persecuted, as they are fearful for their faith. Our view of Jesus in the West can so easily be too small. Well, so it's expanded as we read chapter 1. We can't not go to Narnia as we read this image of Jesus. Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good, but he's the king. He isn't safe. We must work at having both Jesuses in our radar. The imminent Jesus of, of history and the Gospels 
And yet the transcendent and powerful son of man figure who, who is king and has all authority. And we need both. But it can be hard to keep both there. And so John sees Jesus as never before. And so then pick it up again at verse 17 with me. When he saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. I think as he falls at his feet as though dead, it's not just that he's fainting, as he recognises perhaps who this old friend is in new clothes and with a new persona and sort of lightning everywhere. I think he falls as if to say, I can't bear to be exposed to this. I can't deal with this. I think this is a This is a correct Isaiah 6 type response where Isaiah meets the Lord and confronted by his holiness and his righteousness doesn't know what to do with himself because he's so aware of his sin. So aware of his dirtiness. Which is then striking for Jesus' response. He he places his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. You see the simple fact of the right hand on him shows that it's physical, it's Material, it's a real experience, it's not a dream per se. But then he speaks and he says, I think he says, I know about your sin, I know about your spiritual weakness, I know that you are fearful, yes I am holy, but look, verse 18, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, I hold the key of death and Hades. I think he's saying, I've been raised again, I can deal with your sin. I can atone for your sin. I can give you life. I can get you through death. In front of me and my holiness, says Jesus. You might deserve death, but I'm the one who is alive and who brings life for you. So don't think I'm all about condemning you. I'm here to strengthen you. I'm here to help you and for you to help others stand for me, despite opposition. And in any way you can trust me in death. Because I hold the keys of death. And so write what you've seen, write what you are seeing, and write what you will see. Because this is the reality of the situation. This is what my people need to hear. And really that's the end of chapter 1. That's the final bend. It's been a slow meander through the first chapter, but... We might do chapters 2 to 3 another time. You can come and chat to me if you think that's worth it. I'm in two minds. Of course, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, but come and chat to me if you think Revelation 2 to 3 would be a good evening series. But as we finish, I wanted to slightly cheat and say just one thing from chapters 2 to 3 for us. I feel like we've just turned the final bend and we're sprinting for the line. But I think the you like the thing that's left the bell that's left ringing in my ears from this last bit of Revelation 1 is this it's something that's always confused me you see if he's writing to churches facing opposition which I think he is if he's writing to Christians being persecuted then I think he is why in chapters 2 to 3 is he so hard on people because as you as you read the letters to the churches 
he goes on a lot about their sin and what they're getting wrong. I think if it was me writing to friends who were facing hardships or on, on, on the phone with somebody who's finding it hard to be a Christian, perhaps who's facing opposition and persecution for their faith, I think my temptation is just to encourage them. That you think, keep going guys, keep pressing on, it is worth it. I'm with you. I know it's hard, but please, just keep persevering. Trust him. Yes, there might be more and more people coming down the steps. Yes, the steps might feel steeper and steeper and steeper, but just keep climbing. It is worth pressing on as a Christian. I think that's what I would say, but but not for Jesus. With the Son of Man standing amongst the lampstands, he can be pretty negative. So for Ephesus, he'll say, I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. For Pergamum, he'll say, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Thyatira, he'll say, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants to the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols, etc., etc., etc. Why is he so hard on these poor, persecuted Christians? Why? I think in part because he has eyes like burning fire. And where we play around with sin and we don't mind that much about sin, he doesn't do that. He is pure and righteous and powerful and radiant. But I think it's this, I think it's because Jesus knows in the midst of persecution, compromising churches won't stand. I think that's it, as the temperature rises and it gets harder to keep going, churches that have lost the gospel either by what they believe, so there's false teaching stuff there, or in how they live, to use the metaphor we've used all the way along, they won't keep climbing the stairs. It'll just be easy to turn around. And I take it, as we see the results of Pew studies in churches for the last few decades, as we see numbers of Christians dropping in the UK, in large part it's been because of this. It's because churches have lost the gospel, either by what they believe or how they live. And they're the ones that have closed, it's as simple as that. As the temperature's gone up in terms of what it means to live for Christ, so numbers have gone down. And so I think that is why Jesus is so straight with these Christians. Because he knows, he knows that in the midst of persecution, compromising churches simply won't stand. And so what does he say to us as we finish, as we sort of sneak into chapters 2 to 3? I think he says, remember who your holy and pure and righteous God is. Remember Christ. Remember that even if stairs are feeling steeper and more and more people coming down, remember to deal with your sin, to deal with your compromise, to believe the gospel afresh and to stand firm in what you believe and in how you live. Because he has eyes like blazing fire. And he knows what we're like. Let's pray.